4th, my friends. You are tuned into Canadian Patriot Radio, and I am your host, Critch. I turned that song up extra loud <laughs> because I have been getting nostalgic on my music lately. And uh, this album of The Offsprings holds a special place in my heart and probably probably my entire clicks. Because uh, when you start listening to the lyrics that Dexter Holland put forth in the mid-90s and you apply them to today, you're going to be amazed. He knew stuff old Dexter. Um, the album I'm referring to is Offspring Smash, and listen to the whole album, but mainly the songs that didn't get the uh, the notoriety or the more mainstream attention. It's it's songs like this, Something to Believe In, and uh, there's three songs, Genocide, this one, and uh, I'm just going to find you the other one here real quick, because I can't remember it off the top of my head. It'll be a long time. Listen to all three of those songs from the album Smash and tell me what you think of that. <laughs> okay, my friends, the first thing we're going to do in the pre-show is we are going to address the fact that the Telegram Room page is having all sorts of technical difficulties. Uh, mainly, most people cannot even get into the page. Um, it's It'll just come up with a pop-up and say, this page cannot be displayed on your device. Um, I've been noting for probably about a month, a little over a month, that there's specific posts in the page that are not coming up. Um, so I knew something was going on there. Uh, I have reached out to Telegram. I don't. Uh, they haven't gotten back to me. They do. T- they do uh, basically say to you uh, as you reach out that like allow us some time because you know we're answering as quickly as we can, but we get a lot of these inquiries. So before I do anything drastic like completely shut that page down and start another one. I am going to wait for Telegram to get back to me. So in the meantime, I know a lot of you are not, uh, you're missing out. Uh, the Telegram room is is pretty cool. It's always full of stuff. Uh, I do have to make one comment. I, I have noted that there has been some um, racism being posted in there. I did I did go in there and say, hey, look, I don't tolerate racism. That's what not, this page is not about. Um, so... I am trying to clear those out whenever I can, uh, but also keep in mind that there's a lot of you that are administrators. A lot of you have uh, the powers, the same powers that I have. If you see that stuff, uh, get rid of it. Don't tolerate that. I, I know right now is kind of a bad time because uh, a lot of people can't even access the page. But uh, like I said, so that's where we're at. Right now, before I do anything like uh, abbreviate the name like I have had to do in the past with the actual show... Um, and just start a new channel. I, we're going to wait to see if Telegram gets back to me, and we'll see what they uh, what they come up with. Now, for the opening story, um, we've got an interesting article by Russian Television. Now, you'd never see something like this on CBC, CTV, or Global in Canada, but the title reads, Bizarre Neurological Illness Plagues Young Canadians. Otherwise, healthy young adults in New Brunswick are falling ill with crippling sy- symptoms. Now, this was written January 2nd, and it doesn't list an author for us. Dozens of young people with no pre-existing conditions are developing symptoms of a new disease as activists and families suspect a cover-up on the part of the local government. A whistleblower with uh, Vitali Health Network in New Brunswick told The Guardian on Sunday that symptoms include hallucinations, difficulty thinking, limited mobility, insomnia, 
rapid weight and rapid weight loss. Local governments has uh, local government has reported reportedly struggled to dismiss the growing number of cases as Alzheimer's or other neurological diseases uncommon outside the elderly. Well, the official number of cases recorded since the mystery illness was first publicly acknowledged in early spring has not budged upwards from 48. Multiple sources told the um, told the Guardian that as many as 150 people may have contracted the fast-moving illness. Still more young people require assessment, and several have died. I'm truly concerned about these cases because they seem to involve uh, seem to evolve so fast. The source told the outlet, acknowledging that we owe them some kind of explanation. One of the most disturbing elements of this the condition is how little is known regarding transmission. In at least nine cases, caretakers and others in close contact with sick individuals have developed similar symptoms to the ailing party, suggesting the illness not only spreads readily between unrelated individuals, but that there may be environmental factors involved. Some have compared the illness to Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease, a fatal brain disease caused by uh, misshapen proteins called prions, through screening, reportedly uh, those screening reportedly produced no confirmed CDJ cases. The province has struggled to keep up with uh, to, to keep the cases under wraps. The case cluster only uh, only became public last year when a memo was leaked to the media, and the government has insisted the cluster itself is merely the result of misdiagnosis grouping unrelated illnesses together. Officials declared in, in October that eight fatal cases were due to known and unrelated pathologies rather than a shared and unknown illness. An epi epidemiological report released in October supposedly ruled out any food behavioral, behavioral or environmental exposure that could explain the problem. However, another public health scientist who sought to remain anonymous suggested the government was covering something up. The fact that we have a younger spectrum of patients here argues very strongly against what appears to be the preferred position of the government of New Brunswick, that the cases in this cluster are being mistakenly lumped together. Tim Beatty, whose father, Lori, died with similar symptoms, only to be posthumanly declared an Alzheimer's case, is attempting to have his father's remains tested for neurotoxins, including B. methylimino. Uh, L alanine BMAA a suspected trigger for the illness the local economy relies heavily on lobster fishing and the chemical can be found in high concentrations in lobster according to a study cited by the Guardian BD and other families who lost loved ones to the mysterious illness have speculated that the government's refusal to acknowledge the possible existence of the disease cluster in the region could be politically or economically motivated if a group of people wanted to breed conspiracy theorists then our government has done a wonderful job at promoting it, Beatty told The Guardian. Are they, are they just trying to create a narrative for the public that they hope will absorb and walk away from? I just don't understand it. So, not once do you even see uh, Russian television suggest a link to the vaccines, but I'm going to... I'll go there. <laughs> I'll make that reach. You guys know I'll do that. Um, so now it went from the original 48... Um, now, this is unconfirmed, but in the article they say that it could be as many as 150 people. So, we all, um, probably most of you, I do, I know I remember the original story talking about this, and it just quickly went away, uh, because the Canadian media is so good at covering up stuff that could raise huge alarms or red flags. 
but the initial story had 48 people and now we're learning that it could be up to 150. Um, if any of you have friends in New Brunswick, um, do me a favor and reach out to them. I know I have one. I'm going to reach out to him and just see. He might not be in the same area, but I'm going to reach out anyway. And just see if you can get get some info on this story because it just seems very odd that you've got younger people basically displaying Alzheimer's or uh, neurological disorders that uh, usually has an onset of uh, in older, uh, quite elderly patients. So... <clears throat> Just a little bit of a follow-up of a story that we covered quite a while ago, and it's looking like there is a consistent cover-up with this story, and uh, the only way you're going to find information about it is to go to Russia. Russian television. Isn't that just the way it is in our new fascist Canada? All right, my friends, let's get the show started. We'll be right back. Welcome, friends, to Canadian Patriot Radio where conspiracy is not theory and political corruption finds the spotlight. CPR, we are committed to upholding Canadians' God-given rights to life, liberty, and freedom with all thy sons. Command. Welcome back, my friends. I want to jump into uh, the latest and greatest coming out of our um, fascist government that poses as liberals. Um, I'm sure most of you are aware they have now decided that they are going to strip us of our EI benefits. Uh, they just started by saying that um, any COVID relief was going to be off limits for the uh, unvaccinated. But now they've, um, you know, broadened that umbrella to include EI benefits. Now, let's uh, we're not going to read this entire article because it is extremely long, but we're going to get the. Uh, we're going to get the uh, gist of it here. So the title reads, Unvaccinated workers who lose job in ineligible for EI benefits, minister says. This is by the National Post staff, written December 31st, 2021. Jobless Canadians who refuse to get vaccinated for COVID-19 could be shut out of unemployment benefits, warns Employment Minister Carla Qualtr Qualtr Qualtroff. 
Speaking to Canadian press, Qualtroff said, as long as there's a public health emergency, unvaccinated workers who lose hours or their job may not be eligible for, uh, uh, excuse me, for employment insurance benefits. Liberals tackled on, Tack, uh, excuse me, liberals tacked on the condition to a number of benefit payments. The news outlet reports, although those with a medical exemption are excluded. Oh yeah, because those medical exemptions are so easy to get, right? The policy is intended to keep workplaces open and free of COVID outbreaks and encourage vaccine uptake, Qualtroff said. As long as the collective public health of Canadians is jeopardized and our economy is thereby threatened, we're going to have to keep public health policy top of mind in our employment and labor and economic decision making, she noted. Well, obviously, Qualtroff has no has not been paying attention to the fact that uh, two variants now, uh, Delta and Omicron, are moving freely. Uh, I mean, it's just having a heyday in the vaccinated and that the vaccinated are making up the majority of hospitalizations now. But I mean, hey, let's punish the unvaccinated and kick them out of any EI benefits. Um, We don't she doesn't know how long that'll be. Employment and Social Development um, Canada has issued a notice to employers enforcing vaccine mandates to help them fill out records of employment, a document needed to apply for EI benefits. The part, oh, so they're actually going to the employers so the employer can basically fuck over anybody that they've already fucked over. Wow. The notice also lays out multiple factors that could be considered, including whether the vaccine policy was clearly communicated, if it was reasonable within the workplace context, and any potential exemptions from the vaccine policy. In November, the federal government expanded the Canada, uh, the Canada Worker Lockdown Benefit to provide temporary support to workers if their workplace had been affected by capacity capacity limiting restrictions of 50% or more during the pandemic. Eligible workers may receive $270 after tax for each one-week period leading up to February 12th if they have lost 50% or more of their income as a result of capacity limits. The Trudeau Liberals made stipulations in the federal pandemic aid policy in the fall to encourage participation in the labor force, explained Qualtroff. We knew that we knew we had to make sure that if something like Omicron happened, that we still needed a tool to help Canadians who would either who either would lose their jobs or would face reduced hours, she said. But we knew the economy in September of 2021 looked very different than it did in September of 2020. We we so we couldn't just continue with broad measures that maybe would disincentivize work or wouldn't encourage maximum labor force participation i i don't honestly i don't know how um we're we live in a country as broad and uh, what i consider what i used to consider smart i considered i used to consider the the population of uh canada somewhat smart um i don't know how we're not just openly calling this what it is and it's coercion and discrimination and segregation uh this is just unbelievable unbelievable to see an actual heavy air quotes, free democracy government doing this stuff. That's why I just call them fascists. You guys know that. I've been calling them what they are for, oh, geez, what, two years now? <laughs> because it's exactly what they are. So now they get into the uh, employment numbers. Uh, actually, we ended up reading almost the whole article. Uh, so we might as well just finish it. Canada's unemployment rate fell to 6% in November 
uh, 0.3 percentage points shy of data from February 2020, just before the pandemic hit, Statistic Canada estimates. The report found that 19.3 million people in the country were employed, the highest ever recorded, and 183,000 more than uh, pre-pandemic levels. So, you know what my thoughts are on this, my friends? Is if the fascist liberals want to strip a program that you, me, and everybody that has worked from the time they were 12 to 16, was basically when most of us started working, and were actually paying taxes at that age, I'd like to note. Um, if they're going to cut, of, cut us out of that program, I think that every unvaccinated individual that is being discriminated against has the legitimate right to get in touch with your um, member of parliament and demand every red fucking cent you put into that program back. Because I know I'm going to. <laughs> hey, Dr. Robert Kitchens. I'll be filling that uh, little request out tomorrow. So that's my thoughts on that, my friends. If they're going to cut you out of a program that you helped create and maintain, then I think you have every single right to demand your contribution to that program back from this fascist government. Until maybe they rethink their fascist ideology towards you or their segregation or discrimination to you for continuing to stand up for your own bodily autonomy. Now, with that article fresh in your minds, my friends, I want to direct your attention to another Russian television article. This is just another example of something you'd never see in any of the local news, stateside or on the Canada side of the border. And the title reads, uh, this was written on January 2nd, 2022, and the title reads, a third of Americans ready to justify violence against government, poll says. A violation of rights or a military coup were cited as justifications of violence. Every third American, the largest number in more than two decades, believes violence against the government can be justified, especially when the violation of rights is involved when uh, the violation of rights is involved, a new poll has found. According to a Washington Post and University of Maryland poll, 34% of respondents were prepared to justify violent action, up from 23% in 2015 and only 16% in 2011. The number of those who said violence was never justified dropped significantly to 62%, from 76% in 2011. Among those prepared to accept violence, the most, uh, the most cited justifications were circumstances in which the U.S. government violates or takes away rights or freedoms or oppresses people, 22%. In the event that the country is no longer a democracy or becomes a dictatorship or experiences a military coup, 15% said violence would be justified. People's reasoning for what they consider acceptable violence against the government varied from what they considered to be overreaching coronavirus restrictions to the disenfranchisement of minority voters to the oppression of Americans, the Washington Post explained. It added that responses to an open-ended question about hypothetical justifications included autocracy, tyranny, and corruption. <clears throat> Despite an increase in people seemingly condoning violence, more than half of the 1,101 respondents, 51%, say they believe that uh, believe the legal punishments for people who broke into the Capitol building in Washington on January 6th last year have not been harsh enough. What the fuck? <laughs> oh man, that almost just discredited this whole poll for me. 
Just 19% thought they were too harsh and 28% said they were fair. Wow, there was no... Oh my god. We've all seen the footage of the police letting them walk into the into the, the Capitol. We saw them taking down barricades. We saw police waving them in. Like, who are they trying to fool with this shit? My god. Basically, there's been... Well, what? How many? Is there? There's well over 100 people that have been held uh, with no charges in the U.S. since January 6, 2020, uh, basically making them political prisoners, if you really want to get to the just of it. But anyway, <clears throat> that's not the point we're trying to make here. Commenting on the general state of American democracy, 54% they were they said they were proud of how it works, while 46% thought there was nothing to be proud of. The poll was conducted between t- December 17th and 19th with a margin of error of plus four, uh, plus minus four percentage points. The majority of respondents, 33%, identified as independents, while 30% were Democrats and 26 were Republicans. So, I'm sure you can put <laughs> you can put the puzzle together why I read you that article right after listening to our government stripping us of um, programs that we have helped maintain our entire lives. Now, I'm not saying that we, uh, we need to go to that point, but when the government starts doing intentional things to basically screw with you uh, for believing in your own bodily autonomy, believing in your right to choose, uh, the list goes on and on, then I would imagine that if you polled Canadians in specific regions of this country, uh, your polls would reflect probably <clears throat> very closely to the Americans. Uh, and I, actually, actually, I'd be willing to bet that you'd probably get a little bit more uh, here because they aren't, uh, the Americans aren't seeing the straight-up fascist uh, mo- uh, moves when it comes to COVID restrictions that Can- Canadians are. So <clears throat> just keep that in the back of your mind, my friends, and always remember, always remember that 3% of the U.S. population overthrew the British crown, the most powerful military of its time at the time. 3%. I can guarantee in Canada, we're already at 3%. All right, where are we going next, my friends? Well, since we are on this uh, trend of uh, the response to government tyranny, there has been an interesting statistic that has been unavailable to Canadians up until now. This is brought to us by thegunblog.ca, and the title reads, Canadians bought 30,000 AR-15 target rifles in lead-up to Trudeau's May 2020 attacks. The data published here for the first time shows the magnitude of the shopping spree to counter the crackdown. <clears throat> Excuse me, this was written December 15th, 2021, and it doesn't give me an author. Canadians bought roughly 30,000 AR-15 target rifles in the lead-up to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's political and regulatory attack of May 1st, 2020, according to documents shared with thegunblog.ca. This is the first data on the shopping spree and shows the magnitude of the buying surge to counter the crackdown. Details. Adults with a government-issued firearm possession and acquisition license, PAL, bought 29,176 AR-15 target rifles from government licensed sellers in January 2019 to the 19th of April 2020. This data refers to records of new registration certificates issued to transferees, recipients of firearms. The source is the the, the, uh, Department of Public Safety, 
undated internal report based on data from RCMP, Canadian's firearms, uh, Canadian Firearms Program. Why this matters. It marks the first publication of data on the buying surge, including the May 2019 spike. The numbers bolster anecdotal reports from buyers and sellers and regula uh, regulators. It's a victory anytime anyone shares any data on Canada's millions of safe and responsible gun users, given efforts by the hostile politicians and their allies to hide or distort statistics. The data shows the strength of the shopping spree to counter Trudeau's crackdown. Gun, owner, gun owners bet they'd be grandfathered and allowed to keep their new guns after any prohibitions. They aim to thwart confiscations by making them too costly. <clears throat> more people with more guns means more confiscation victims to be compensated. <laughs> uh, Department of Public Safety AT ATIP response. The following is a page one. It fo the following is a page one of 68 pages of internal memos, reports, emails, and other documents obtained by Jillian via access to information and privacy laws and, uh, and that he shared with the gunblog.ca, which basically just shows the surge in um, AR-15s that, that uh, were bought throughout the year, through January 2019 to April 2020. A huge surge in right before... Yeah, right before he... Uh, he announced it in May. Sorry, I'm just reading this as we go. <clears throat> Clement Sparks May 2019 buying spike. Conservative MP Tony Clement's warning to the House of Commons on uh, the 9th of May triggered an AR-15 buying spike. Hundreds of thousands of people learned from Clement that Trudeau was preparing to attack just as B uh, Bill C-71 was being signed into law to further suppress licensed gun owners. It's notable that purchases soared in the days and weeks after Clement's warning, but not after Trudeau and Minister Bill Blair de uh, detailed their crackdown starting in June 2019. AR-15 bestseller. The semi-automatic AR-15 is one of the world's most popular firearms. <clears throat> it's a bestseller for high accuracy, reliability, medium power, low weight, and soft recoil. It's, it's a favorite of everyone from recreational shooters, uh, competitors, collectors, and hunters to police and the military. The Trudeau crackdown. Trudeau worked in secret with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to turn every government-licensed AR-15 buyer, seller, and owner into a criminal starting on May 1st, 2020, and is now working to confiscate the goods. He will fail. Every AR-15 owner before before then had been approved by the RCMP Canadian Firearms Program and Provincial Chief Firearms Officers. Trudeau and his allies are specifically targeting the country's 2.2 million adults with a government-issued gun license. Assumptions and limitations. The AR-15 data are, useful are a useful indicator of the direction and magnitude of buying rather than a precise measure. <clears throat> It's hard to get data on AR-15 ownership and different reports seem to generate contradictory results because they don't include the same criteria. The RCMP reference table, FRT, their private gun database wasn't designed to provide the info and getting it requires custom searches. RCMP response to gunblog.ca. The gunblog.ca asked the RCMP for AR-15 data in an effort to verify the information in the ATIP. Caroline Duval, a spokesperson for the Ottawa-based Controller of Firearms Ownership, emailed us the following response. The information you requested is not available at this time. 
The Canadian Firearms Program receives numerous requests for statistics and are not able to accommodate one-off requests for new data due to other operational priorities at this time. <coughs> what we can offer is the most recent statistics that are currently available to us and refer you to the Annual Commissioner of Firearms Report. The most recent version of this report is expected to be tabled soon. Here are the latest statistics that we have available on AR-15s. The following table outlines the number of AR-15 type firearms newly registered to businesses and individuals annually since January 1st, 2017. January 1st, 2017 uh, to December 31st, 2017, there was 13,088 uh, AR-15s bought or newly registered. January 1st, 2018 to December 31st, 2018, there was 12,375. And January 1st, 2019 to August 5th, 2019, there is 6,521. These firearms have never been registered previously in the Canadian Firearms Information System. These numbers do not include transfer or firearms in existing inventories. The year is based on the data that the registration became valid. All restricted firearms must be registered whether they are owned by an individual or a business. Um, there you go, my friends. So <clears throat> basically there was a huge surge uh, as soon as the fascist liberals decided that they were going to come after uh, legally acquired firearms, uh, Canadians went and they got the tip-off uh, due to a con uh, conservative MP. Uh, they surged, like they went out and bought 30,000. Now, it's funny, <clears throat> even in the gun blog, they, they suggested that uh, uh, these people were hoping to be grandfathered, uh, you know, so that the gun wouldn't be confiscated. Uh, I, ha I have every sneaking suspicion that the uh, fascist liberals are not going to go with any program like that. Uh, they might, I guess. We'll see. Right now, they've got it so you can't even move your AR-15. You can't do nothing with it. Uh, I'm assuming that these 30,000 newly acquired AR-15s were bought purely uh, with the intent to never give them back. <laughs> I'm just going to go out on a limb there and just say, um, yeah, I, I can tell you that uh, I would, or, you know, I can assume that people didn't rush out and buy these to make to make money off a gun buyback program or to hope that they get grandfathered in. They went out and bought these because they were afraid that they would never be available in Canada again. So they got their hands on as many as they possibly could. I can tell you that's why they bought them. And they have absolutely no intention of giving them back. So we'll see. Because April's coming up real quick, my friends. So we'll see what these fascist fuckface liberals got in, gotten, you know in store for us uh, legal gun owners that have never uh, caused any any crimes uh, like their their staged uh, shooting that they had out on the East Coast. <laughs> We've covered that in depth on this show. I don't believe for one second that wasn't a staged uh, operation, uh, false flag. Uh, I, unfortunately, real people were injured. Uh, but, the, we, I mean, we've covered the fact that the shooter... Uh, was basically an informant uh, and and had worked with the RCMP be, RCMP before. He was known to the RCMP. He collected a payout. I mean, all the signs are there. It's an op. We all know it. We were born at that night, but it wasn't last fucking night. All right, let's get off this topic, my friends. All right, my friends, we are next going to focus our attention on a, uh, a former CBC producer... Um, the title reads, former, uh, former producer blows lid off CBC's radical political agenda after resigning. This was by Cosman Zerzda, and it was written today, January 4th, 
2022, and this comes to us by way of True North News. A former CBC TV and radio producer has blown the lid off the public broadcaster's radical leftist workplace culture after penning a scathing Substack column on why she left the outlet. In the column titled Speaking Freely, Why I Resigned from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, Tara Henley relates how working at the CBC means signing on to a radical political agenda. To work at the CBC in the current climate is to embrace cognitive dissonance and to abandon abandon journalistic integrity, wrote Henley. Oh, yeah! It is to sign on enthusiastically to a radical political agenda that originated on Ivy League campuses in the United States and spread throughout America social media platforms that monetize outrage and stoke social divisions. It is to pretend that the woke worldview is nearly universal, even if it is far from popular with those you know, and to speak to and interview and read. Henley joined the CBC in 2013 and resigned in 2021. During her time with the public broadcaster, Henley says she became aware of certain questionable race-based employment tactics in line with woke ideology. To work at the CBC now is to accept the idea that race is the most significant thing about a person, and that some races are more relevant to the public conversation than others. It is in my newsroom to fill out racial profile forms for every guest you book, to actively book more people of some races and less of others, said Hanley. True North reached out to CBC's head of public affairs, Chuck Thompson, to confirm whether guests were being racially profiled by producers. Thompson's answer skirted the question. To be clear, there is no racial quotas for our news content. Simply stated, as the public broadcaster, CBC News covers the stories that need to be told in an ever-changing Canada. Oh, fuck. Like, yeah, right. Like what? Like the, the deaths going on in every single community now uh, due to the vaccines? I've never seen CBC cover that once. Or any, uh, any Canadian media outlet for that matter. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> I get excited when anything CBC is involved because you and I both know they are nothing but a propaganda bullshit outlet. Oh, it is our responsibility and something we take very seriously, Thompson told True North. Oh, I bet. <clears throat> Thompson did not provide a requested sample of the forum producers were required to fill out when booking guests, but instead linked to a CBC blog post on diversity. As the blog notes, we join other reputable news organizations doing similar work, including the BBC and NPR, said Thompson. Oh, couldn't bury yourself more with referencing those two. In her column, Henley also bashes the CBC for becoming less adversarial to government and corporations and more hostile to ordinary people. To work at the CBC, she wrote, is to consent to the idea that, the, that a growing list of subjects are off the table. That dialogue itself can be harmful. That the big issues of our time are, are, are already settled. It is to capitulate to certainty, to shut down critical thinking, to stamp out curiosity, to keep, one's, to keep one's mouth shut and not to ask questions, to not rock the boat. This, Henley concluded, while the world burns. Many experts and commentators have noted CBC's growing ideological uniformity and failing business practices. Renowned author and psychologist Dr. Jordan Peterson recently called the outlet a near corpse. <laughs> The legal, the legacy media are in unrecover in, are in a unrecoverable unrecoverable death spiral, spinning ever more uncontrollably. The CBC has become a mewling, meandering, self righteous, slogan spewing, narcissistic near copes. 
near corpse, said Peterson in a tweet. Oh, yeah. Jordan Peterson just slapping them right into their place. But anyway, that um, is super cool that we've got um, an insider now. And hats off, huge hats off to uh, to Henley. Uh, what was her first name? Oh, my goodness. Tara Henley. Jeez, took me a while to find that. So, um, and, you know, hats off to her. Uh, we need more. We need, I hopefully she's a trailblazer and more start uh, just deciding to just leave the ranks of the Canadian media because it's nothing but a farce. It is. Uh, and it doesn't matter if it's CBC. You know, we, we like to pick on CBC the most on this show because they are absolutely pathetic. Uh, their writing has become absolutely pathetic. Their contradictions to their own points within paragraphs is, is I love it. As you guys know, I absolutely love it because I just laugh and thrash them because they're just horrible. It's not even, it's brutal. Like the spelling mistakes, the uh, grammar mistakes. Um, you guys have heard me pause multiple times reading CBC so-called uh edited articles and going what the it doesn't even make sense what they're saying right but uh like i said hopefully uh hopefully hopefully tara henley is a trailblazer and more in the canadian media media follow her lead um what we do need is these people to join independent media and uh set up an alternative viable alternative uh media outlet that can get um the truth back into a mainstream type of uh uh form format so that the, I would say, 60 to 70% of Canadians that are still living under a deep hypnosis can start beginning their awakening process. And one of the ways that that could be done is by um, information like I'm about to share with you next. Now, this is uh, Stephen Kirsch's newsletter, and uh, this was written December 14th, 2021. And he did a very clever... Uh, breakdown of the VARES numbers. Latest VARES estimate, three, 388,000 Americans killed by the COVID vaccines. An independent der, uh, derivation of the VARES URF using the CMS uh, death data leads to a URF of 44.64, which then leads to a 388K excess death estimate. My estimate of the VAERS underreporting under factor URF at 41 was based on anaphylaxis race rates reported in the Blumenthal paper published in JAMA. I have argued that the anaphylaxis rate is an appropriate number to use to, underest, uh, <coughs> excuse me, to underestimate deaths because I believe that deaths would be less reported than anaphylaxis to VAERS for two reasons. Number one, usually lacks the time proximity to the va uh, vaccination. And two, the person seeing the death may not know the vaccination status of the victim and, many, and may technically not, require, not be required to report the death. <clears throat> Some people have quibbled with this assumption, including my friend, Professor John Ionotis, Ionitis, who argued that there is no evidence that this is true and it could be the other way around. It's a fair point, and I told John it's only an estimate, and I'm happy to modify it when we have more data. That day has arrived courtesy of Wayne at VAERS analysis. Using CMS whistleblower data to approximate the underreporting factor for VAERS. 
Uh, for those who have been paying attention, it should be widely known by now that VARES significantly underreports adverse events data. However, the million dollar question is always, what is the exact underreporting factor? Wayne did a URF computation using death data at, in CMS. This overcomes any objections about the validity using, an, using anaphylaxis rates as a proxy for death rates. The VARES URF he computed was 44.64. This seems reasonable to me. It's not really far from the 41 I calculated. Also, Wayne subsequently looked at the numbers for nine states. The average value was 40, not far from the 41 I calculated from anaphylaxis. I had two team members, Albert uh, Benavides and Jessica Rose, double check his numbers, no mistake. Now let's see what that means. As of December 14th, 2021, there are 9,136 deaths reported into VARES for domestic deaths if you are using open VARES. Flip the switch at the top to see the US only deaths. If we subtract out more than twice the total number of deaths reported in any previous year to be super conservative about estimating background deaths. Um, so our new estimate of the numbers of excess deaths caused by the vaccine is 388,000 because there isn't a plausible mechanism of excess deaths other than the vaccine. Uh, certainly our always vigilant CDC has, has never suggested an alternate cause. Uh, the process of elimination leads us to conclude the obvious, that these excess deaths were in fact caused by the vaccine. This should really be a surprise to anyone paying attention to the clinic, uh, clinical trials. For example, in, Fis- in the Pfizer trial, you were much more likely to die if you got the vaccine than if you got the placebo. They simply forgot to mention that, that in the abstract of the paper and they were incapable of accurately counting the number of deaths in each group as well. In short, the vaccine is is a killing machine. As the clinical trials showed, it was more likely to kill you than to save you. America still refuses to actually acknowledge this fact. 388,000 dead Americans is simply stunning. Today, our best estimate of vaccine fatalities using the VAERS data is that the U.S. government is responsible for killing 388,000 formerly healthy Americans for no uh, reason or societal, societal, excuse me, societal benefit under the guise of saving them. And we're not done yet. Those kids with myocarditis, half of them could die in five years. We just don't know. Prion disease, we don't know. Autoimmune disease, we don't know. Reproductive issues, unknown. Original antigenic sin, possibly. You get the idea. By contrast, the Vietnam War was a long, deadly struggle that took place from 1954 to 1975 between North Vietnam and South Vietnam. The U.S. National Archives show that 58,220 U.S. soldiers perished over the 21 years. Here, we've killed more than six times as many people in a fraction of the time, just 11 months. No one in the mainstream media will dare talk about this. They won't even ask the question. Not a single reporter. Nobody in Congress will discuss it either. I tried to bring this information to the attention of congressional staff, but they have ignored my requests. Of course, the FDA and CDC have no comment other than they disagree with me. They won't say why, wow, we have a discrepancy of 388,000 Americans dead, and they won't even say why I got it wrong. I'm guessing that they can't say why, because I used their numbers, they maintain bears and CMS, and their methodology 
and there was no math errors. So they have to go. Uh, so they have to go with the hand waving arguments that we disagree, since they can't go with facts, evidence, data, or methodology errors. As for all the bogus arguments about VARES and causality that are used by the so-called fact checkers to attack my work, I, thor- I thoroughly dismantled those in my 63-page article. That is why none of the people at the FDA or CDC are willing to talk on the record to me, because I know how to dismantle their bogus excuses for looking for the, uh, for looking the other way. They won't talk to any of my associates either. They just don't want to hear it. Oh boy, let me know in the comments if you find an error. Finally, I know some of you are still unconvinced by the data, including the stunning athlete data, and I'm okay with that. I just have one request. Please consider sharing this article with your social network before you get your booster. (laughs) Oh, no kidding. Good job, Steve Kirsch. So, you know, we ran quick numbers on uh, just the, you know, we we just ran on the percentages. And I think we were coming up with about, what, 400,000? And he's actually broke it right down and done the mathematics on uh, on on uh, the error margins and uh, using anaphylaxis as a uh, as a guide. So that's that's wild. And uh, we weren't even that far off just by just by um, guesstimating with the percentages uh, the the error or, or excuse me uh, the accuracy um, guesstimate. Of VARES, that it's only 1% to 10%. And we went high. We went high. We went 10%. So we were close at 10%. Okay, my friends. What are we going to do next here? I think what we're going to do next is we're going to turn it over to Dr. Julie Ponez. Um, she was, do you guys remember the ethics professor from Western <clears throat> that basically pleaded uh, with the country? Um uh, about uh, you know, like just just the ethics behind the, the the mandates. Well, she has come forward now, and she's uh, she's done kind of a follow up. And uh, I just want to turn your guys' attention over to it because it's just just like her plea. Uh, it's absolutely brilliant. I'm going to go home now because that was worth the two and a half hour drive. (laughs) Hi, everybody. Well, thank you so much for coming. I want to start with a question. How free do you feel? (laughs) (laughs) When was the last time you felt truly free? Raise your hand if you felt more free a week ago. How about two years ago? How about 10 years ago? Yeah. (laughs) My own story with freedom is a complicated one, and as of late, a bit of a dramatic one. (laughs) Two years ago, I taught ethics and ancient philosophy at Western. I taught students, to the best of my ability, how to think critically, evaluate evidence, and ask good questions. How, in other words, to think for themselves, not outsource their thinking to the government or to blindly follow authority. On September 16th, I received a termination with cause letter after I publicly questioned 
and refused to comply with Western's vaccine mandate. I was terminated not for failing to show up for class or because I had poor teaching evaluations, but for doing exactly what I had been hired to do, for questioning what I take to be an unethical demand. Two years ago, I thought that being a professor was the freest profession in the world. And I had pretty good reason for that view. The word professor comes from the Latin for declare openly, testify voluntarily, and take a vow. A professor isn't someone who just sits in the comfort of the proverbial armchair and gives the occasional lecture, but someone who is willing to try out untested ideas, ask questions before having answers to them, and speak openly even when doing so comes with great risk. Two years ago, I believed that every Canadian has a right to decide for herself what does or does not enter our bodies. And I still believe that today. The, <laughs> the right to be free from non-consensual medical treatment is deeply rooted in our common law, in the ethical principles of the Canadian Medical Association, in the Tri-Council Policy Statement for participants involved in medical research, and it's part of the promise made to humanity by those who drafted the Nuremberg Code in 1947. It seems today that the phrase, oh, we're in a pandemic, is being used to justify just about any violation of our right to make our own decisions about what does or does not enter our bodies. But is that the case? Are we in a state of emergency? The numbers tell a different story, as Kyle has, has quite rightly pointed out. New data emerges every day to show that we would have been out of this thing in 2020 if we had just circled our health wagons around the most vulnerable and let life go on far closer to normal for the rest of us. In fact, if we had done just about anything other than what we had done, what we did, we likely would have been better off. <laughs> As Dr. Jennifer Grant, an infectious disease specialist from UBC, wrote in the Toronto Sun this week, COVID is destined to become the fifth circulating coronavirus, and we need to figure out how to live with it. The COVID zero plan is a pipe dream. I was asked a while ago, what would it mean? What would justify um, mandating or even forcing vaccinations? Well, to be honest, it isn't clear to me that vaccine mandates are ever ethically justified. But if they are, they would need to meet a very high threshold for justification. COVID-19 would need to be a highly virulent pathogen for which there is no adequate treatment and the vaccines would need to be demonstrably safe and effective. As it is, COVID-19 has an infection fatality rate, not even 1% that of smallpox, for example, which makes it, depending on the numbers you look at in which parts of the world, makes it 200 to 600 times less deadly. And it poses even less risk to children. A number of safe, highly effective, repurposed pharmaceuticals and nutraceuticals exist to treat it, including ivermectin, fluvoxamine, vitamin D, quercetin, and zinc. 
And over the last 30 years, more than a third of the one and a half million vaccine injury reports have been linked to the COVID vaccines. In light of these facts, I have so many questions. Why are the vaccinated granted vaccine passports when the director of the CDC, Israel's director of public health, the chief scientific advisor to the UK government, and Dr. Fauci himself have all stated that the vaccines do not, cannot prevent transmission? Why are we now led to believe, and seem to be quite happy to believe, that the less well something works, the more reason we have to take it? You guys are the experts. Have I got something wrong there? <laughs> if the COVID vaccines are essential, if they work so well, why aren't they working? <laughs> and why don't we care? <laughs> you guys care, I know. Is this a scientific mistake on a global scale? Or were the vaccines designed to fail? Why does Health Canada continue to ignore the early outpatient treatment protocols when they are being used by brave Canadian doctors here today, <laughs> every day, <laughs> every day with a success rate should, that should embarrass doctors Tam and Moore? Why are we focused on the narrow benefits of vaccine-induced immunity when real-world studies show that natural immunity is more protective, more potent, and more enduring? Why do our public health officials continue to claim that the vaccines are perfectly safe when Pfizer's own six-month trial data shows they are causing a 300% increase in adverse events? a 75% increase in severe adverse events, and a 43% increase in deaths. Pfizer's own data is showing this. When Moderna is no longer given to those under 30 in the UK, Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Iceland, Germany, and France, and Taiwan has stopped using the Pfizer vaccine for children 12 to 17, because of the risk of adverse events. <laughs> what are these countries seeing that Canada just isn't? Don't our children deserve the same caution, the same protections? Last Sunday night, one week ago today, the plane arrived in London. Carrying the first vaccine doses for children. Starting first thing Monday morning, clinics were set up in schools across the city to start vaccinating children. But we are told this is okay, as long as the vaccinators are offering balloons and wearing superhero costumes. I don't mean to make that a joke. It's just so absurd, it's hard to. If the numbers play out in the younger age groups, 
many of the children who were vaccinated this week and who will be tomorrow and in the days and weeks ahead will not live to see their next birthdays. And all of this is to give them, at most, a 1% absolute risk reduction from a disease that poses to them less risk of hospitalization than the seasonal flu. For my part, I will fight every day for a world in which this isn't something we have to worry about, in which our children need to fear only what is truly fearful, in which they can live like children and not like little adults carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders. Let me ask you again, how free do you feel? How free are we? Are you familiar with the Life of Pi novel? <laughs> its author talks about the trade-off involved with living in a zoo. In the zoo, Things are pretty good. You're well fed and you have everything you need to live safely and comfortably without constantly fearing for your life. But you are caged. In the wild, you are cold, hungry, and constantly afraid of being someone else's next meal. But you are perfectly free. Which would you rather be, fed or free? <laughs> Why does it seem that so many today are content with life in the cage? Have we decided that a life of conformity and security, if that is even possible, is worth the price of freedom? What if you're blind to the cage that has been constructed around you? What if you help to build it? How many of you in the last month have seriously thought about leaving Canada? Be honest, <laughs> okay. <laughs> How many times <laughs> have you made a cup of coffee and opened your internet browser searching for things like freest countries in the world or <laughs> countries without vaccine passports or how do I move to Texas or Florida or... <laughs> Or Missouri, Missouri. I've been doing a lot of research on Missouri lately for some reason. <laughs> I personally do this every week or so, and actually sometimes every hour or so, depending on the day. <laughs> we have clearly lost a lot over the last two years. But as bleak as things are, maybe it's not time to give up on our country quite yet. And it isn't clear that things would be measurably better if we went somewhere else. This is a global phenomenon that requires a global solution. But that solution needs to begin at home, where we live, with the people that we know and see every day. So what can we do as individuals who feel powerless against the steamroll of a relentless COVID narrative machine? What can you do when you wake up first thing tomorrow morning and you think, I was really inspired yesterday, but now what? <laughs> My first piece of advice, the moment you leave here, take a step back, 
Get some distance from the madding crowd and find your own space where you can get hold of your thoughts and your perspective. Stop drinking from the fire hose of daily COVID-19 updates, nudge messages, social media bun fights, and TV, cable TV pundit wars. Shut off the noise so you can allow your thoughts to emerge from the silence. <laughs> then you can start to approach others with the goal of communicating respectfully and productively. It could happen at your family dinner table or in the lineup waiting for your double-double or chatting with the parent as you pick your child up after school. Having a conversation where the primary currency isn't argumentative victory Make room for questions that aren't designed to trap the other person in a logical gotcha. <laughs> Listen to understand and not just wait to reply. But I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, is talking really going to help at this point? Aren't we beyond that? Haven't we fallen too far? Perhaps, but one thing we are learning is that the fear-induced mass psychosis in which we find ourselves was able to take hold partly because we have been decoupled from each other. We live our lives on our little cell phones, in our private homes, and now masked and socially distanced from one another. I asked a trusted friend, quite brilliant friend the other day, what is it going to take to get people to wake up? I mean, where are we actually seeing the victories? And this is what she had to say. She said, it's really only happening within the safety of trusted relationships. A professor I know, I won't share his name, I'm not sure he'd like that, but um, very smart guy, a year ago was on the other side of the narrative. And about just a little less time than that, he started asking questions only once his deeply respected spouse started prodding him a little bit. Now he is a very vocal academic who's doing wonderful work um, challenging the narrative. We need more trust, I think, and we need to build on the trusting relationships that we already have. In an epistle addressed to his friend, the Roman poet Horace offers a fable in which a fool waits for a stream to cease flowing before attempting to cross, while the wise man forgoes comfort and attempts to cross anyway. We don't always have the luxury of waiting for the perfect conditions before venturing out. Sometimes we need to leave the safety of the shore and forge ahead into the torrential stream. Let's refuse to comply. Let's ask questions. Let's dismantle the cage. Let's cross the stream while it is still flowing. And I know this is cliche, but if not us, then who? And if not now, then when? <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Definitely some good points to ponder there. <clears throat> and now you know why I wanted to follow up with her, because... Uh, She's absolutely brilliant in, in uh, getting other people to think, <laughs> as, as a professor should be. Um, 
And you heard her mention uh, mass psychosis. And, and uh, I just wanted to touch on this before we say farewell. Uh, uh, <clears throat> that was kind of coined. Well, it's been coined in a few places now, but it's really took off when after uh, Dr. Robert Malone was uh, on Joe Rogan's podcast with uh, initially he had 19 million, um, 19 million viewers. And since then, it's probably gone up to the hundreds of millions because uh, Joe Rogan's got way farther reach than any mainstream media outlet or actually all of them combined when you really start thinking about it. And uh, Dr. Robert Malone also mentioned uh, mass psychosis. And the mainstream media has been scrambling to discredit that terminology ever since it, it, be, it, be, it hit mainstream. So, <clears throat> as you know, mass psychosis is real. And um, Dr. Julie Pones just nailed it, like, you know, how, how it's actually working and why uh, the, the disconnect of, between people, why it has gotten as far as it has. So it's just a matter of, uh, I guess, recreating connections between people. Um, you know, most of us, especially now, uh, the group of us that have stayed on, the, on this side of the fence, the right side of history, are, are closer than ever. Um, and it's just a matter of getting those that, um, you know, thought they were probably doing the best thing for their, them, themselves and their family. Um, you know, a lot of them are really waking up. And like you guys have heard me predict, I, I knew that three shots wasn't going to be too much for them. It'll be four and five that you're going to start seeing them go, okay, what the hell? So <clears throat> this is the time to really start getting them on board. But in the meantime, instead of just working on other people, make sure you guys are attending rallies, uh, writing your MPs and MLAs. I mean, I'm doing this weekly. Uh, I'm, I'm basically, my premier probably swears every week. <laughs> <laughs> Every time he sees my uh, my my name in his inbox, he's probably like, "Oh, this guy." Which, whatever, <clears throat> you know, I, I'm fully aware of the risks I'm taking that I could get myself flagged, which I probably already was. <laughs> but at the same point, we we have to stand up. We cannot take this; otherwise, they're just going to keep going. So, with that being said, my friends, as always. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook. It's Canadian Patriot Radio. Uh, use the mes message button for any uh, any questions or concerns or news. Uh, a lot of you have reached out to me to let me know the Telegram page wasn't working, <laughs> which uh, we are working on, so we'll see how this plays out, as I said in the pre-show. Um, so I'm not going to give you the Telegram address because right now it's a little bit... Uh, uh, it's a little bit under fire. Who knows what the heck is actually going on? Is it a shadow ban? Is it just technical? Like, uh, I'm I'm wondering if it's just older. If they're uh, if it's just not showing up on like older phones. If their if their tech only supports maybe uh, newer newer phones. Which who knows? Um, but if you if you uh, if you want to reach out to me via email, it's CanadianPatriotRadio at gmail.com. And of course, there's always the website website, which is CanadianPatriotRadio.ca. I'll keep you guys posted as I find out from Telegram what's going on. Like I said, the alternative will be probably to open just another channel. I'll probably just abbreviate it just like I did the show to keep it up on other platforms. Um, there's ways around the algos and so on and so forth. If it is a shadow ban, uh, we will figure it out. Um, you know, if Telegram doesn't get back to me, then obviously it is probably a shadow ban, which I thought Telegram was one of those places where you could uh, <clears throat> freely 
discuss whatever you chose to. But if that's the case, then apparently not. Or maybe the reach of the Canadian government is getting to Telegram already. Who knows, my friends. We'll hopefully figure it out in the near future. So, thank you so much for tuning in again. And until next time, in all thy sons command. for joining us for another episode of Canadian Patriot Radio. CPR is not filmed before a live studio audience. If you like the show, friends, make sure you give us a thumbs up and share us on all your social media platforms. Until next time, take care.